Trinity Baptist Church. For those of you who don't know, my name's Keith, and I'm one of the pastors here. And so welcome uh, to those who are visiting with us today. Uh, Before I get started, I just have a, a real quick fashion question. When you've got three buttons, do you just button one or two? Top two, thank you. Okay. I just wasn't sure. So um, anyway, this morning, I want us to spend a few minutes talking about what I think is the most powerful force in the world. And it's not achieved by splitting atoms or focusing lasers. Uh, The most powerful force in the world is hope. I mean, if you think about it, hope is what drives us to do anything. I mean, hope is why students go to college. Hope is why we invest in the markets. Hope is why we buy things like um, Five Masters and Ab Crunchers. Um, hope is why I'm a Cowboys fan. Uh, you know, we are irrepressible hopers. But my question for us this morning is, where do you place your hope? Where are you placing your, your dreams and your aspirations? Or, or maybe a, a better way to ask the question is, have you placed your hope in the wrong place? Because a lot of us put our hope in things like finances and money. You know, we, we think that if we, if we can achieve a certain level of financial stability or financial success, then everything's going to be just fine. But what my guess is most of us in this room have come to realize that that's not going to, that doesn't satisfy, doesn't fill the hole. Because maybe you haven't gotten to that level where you feel secure and, and so you're still hoping there. Or, or maybe you have gotten to a level of financial security and, and you're, you're just still feeling empty. It's still not satisfying. Or, or maybe you put your hope in um, achievement and you, you just, you know, you've got a taste of it and you just want more. You think that achievement's going to satisfy and so you go to school, you get the education, you get the promotion, you climb the ladder of success, you get to the top, and when you get to the top, you find out, this isn't all that I thought it would be. Or maybe you put your hope in, in relationships. How many of you remember how it felt to fall in love for the first time? Well, come on. <laughs> no, I forgot. Of course you do. And it feels awesome. Right? But how many of you are still with the person you first fell in love with? <laughs> Maybe a few. But that feeling felt so good that you go, okay, I'm, okay, but this wasn't the right person, so I'm going to Go find Mr. Wright or Ms. Wright. And so you go looking and you search and, and you find Mr. Wright only to find out that Mr. Wright was really all wrong. And then you go through two or three or four Mr. Wrong Mr. Wrights, you know, and you've got these busted relationships or broken marriages. Where have you put your hope? 
This morning, I want us to to look at a part of the Easter story that may be um, a little less familiar to some of us than than a lot of the parts. I mean, most of us are are familiar with the the general outline of Easter, right? You know, it's the first day of the week. It's Easter Sunday morning. Two women go to the tomb. The tomb is empty. There's an angelic visitation. They run. They tell the disciples, and the rest is history. But there's a lesser-known story that doesn't happen at the beginning of the day. It happens at the end of the day. And I think that's significant because sometimes hope comes late. So what I'd like to do is, is look at this text in Luke chapter 24. If you've got your Bibles or you can use the one in the pew or maybe it's on your smartphone or you got a tablet or whatever you read. Luke chapter 24. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke. This is chapter 24, starting in verse 13. It says, now that same day, and that same day is referring to Easter Sunday. Now that same day, two of them, two of Jesus' disciples... We're going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're, they're on this seven-mile trek. How long does it take the average person to walk seven miles? Ballpark. A couple hours, right? I mean, you can leisurely pace three and a half miles an hour. You can do seven miles in a couple hours. So they're on this two-hour walk. Verse 14 says they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, who are these people? Well, in verse 18, we, we see that one of them is named Cleopas or, or Clopas. And from the Gospel of John, we know that there was a woman who was at the cross when Jesus was crucified. Her name was Mary, wife of Clopas. So scholars that I've read think that this Um, these two folks on the road to Emmaus who are talking back and forth are not two men, but they're a husband and wife. They're Cleopas or Clopas and his wife Mary, which makes sense to me because two dudes are not going to be talking as they're walking, all right? (laughs) So I think this couple's kind of going back and forth. And they're trying to come to grips with Jesus' crucifixion and burial. Verse 15, an interesting thing happens. It says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So they're walking along. They're despondent over Jesus' death. Jesus comes up behind them, inserts himself into the conversation, but they, for reasons we don't understand, they don't recognize him. So he hears them wrestling with with this. In verse 17, he says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And that question stops them. It says, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, what planet are you from? Did you just crawl out from under a rock? To which Jesus could have said, well, actually, now that you mention it. (laughs) But he didn't say that. 
He just says, what things? So they tell him about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And you can just hear their voice drop. And they crucified him. And then they say this next phrase. But we had hoped. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. These are two very discouraged disciples on this seven-mile journey. They had left everything to follow Jesus. They had put all their hope in him, and now he's dead. We had hoped... He was going to free us from Roman oppression. We had hoped that he was going to return Israel to the glory days. We had hoped. My guess is there's not a person in this room who hasn't started a sentence with those three words. We had hoped. I had hoped. Some of you said it this week. We had hoped there wouldn't be any more cancer in our family. We had hoped that this would be the the dream job. We had hoped that this marriage would last forever. We, We had hoped that we would have children by now. We had hoped that our finances would turn around and we could keep our place. We had hoped. This couple is devastated. They think Jesus is still dead. They think Jesus is still in the tomb. So how does Jesus respond? Does Jesus try to comfort them and say, oh, sorry for your loss? Can I say a prayer for you? Is that what Jesus says? Verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are. Sometimes Jesus isn't also sensitive, you know. (laughs) Sometimes he just, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Everybody here has had this experience. We've all had this experience where we thought we knew the story we were in. We thought we knew our story. And then in a moment of blinding clarity, something happens, somebody says something, and we go, wow, that's a different story. Now I get it. Um, I read a story this past, recently about this couple who had been married for 60 years. And they'd had this this long marriage, great marriage, no secrets kept from from one another, except the woman had a shoebox in the top of her closet that she cautioned her husband and said, don't ever ask me about the shoebox, don't ever look in the shoebox. And so the husband had agreed to that. Well, So they've been married all these years. The woman gets sick, 
And the doctor says she's not going to recover. And, and so the husband decides, well, I think now it's time for me to find out what's going on in the shoebox. And so he gets the shoebox and he brings it to his wife's bedside. And she says, yeah, um, it's time. So they open the shoebox. Inside, he finds two crocheted dolls and a stack of money of $95,000. And he goes, what is this? And she said, well... Before we got married, my grandmother told me that the, the secret to a happy marriage is to never argue. And so she said, um, every time you get angry with your husband, before you start to argue with him, um, crochet a doll. And, and he looks and he goes, man, there's two dolls in here. And, and, and he gets tearful and it's Babe, honey, that's, that's amazing that in 60 years of, of living and loving and marriage, you've only been angry with me twice. That's unbelievable. He said, but what about the money? And she said, well, every time I crocheted a doll, I sold it at a craft fair for $5. <laughs> I love that story. Because... That's the human condition. We, we don't really understand our story sometimes until somebody comes along and, and brings clarity to it. And the reason why we don't understand it is because of this thing called sin. We all operate out of this um, human condition of, of sinfulness that taints our perspective. It, it taints our vision. We don't, we don't see things clearly. We don't understand how things are, are, are really coming together. We don't really understand our own story because of sin. And we live out of that faulty perspective. That's what's going on with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're, they're wrestling with things. We had hoped Jesus would redeem things like this. We, our perspective is here. We think our story looks like this. But Jesus comes along and he said, how foolish you are. Let me, let me, tell, your, let me tell you your story in a little different way. Because there's a pattern. There's a theme. There's a, there's a scarlet cord that weaves all through the story. And so when I share this with you, I think you'll understand how you fit into my story. And so Luke tells us, Jesus says how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, which refers to the first five books of the Bible, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for that conversation? Jesus says, let me tell you your story, but let me tell it to you a little differently because your story fits into the context of my story. How long does Jesus have to teach these guys? Seven miles. 
two hours. And I get like 35 minutes. <laughs> but, you know, he's Jesus, so I guess he gets more. Um, what does Jesus tell these guys? It doesn't tell us. But I can guess. And we talked about this some last week. I think Jesus started in Genesis chapter 3 and he talked about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head but bruising his heel in the process. I think he talked about how God um, took away Adam and Eve's fig leaves and replaced it with the skin of a sacrificed lamb in order to cover their sin and their shame. I think he took them to, to Genesis 22 and talked about how Abraham offered up Isaac to God, but God said no, and he gave it, Isaac back to Abraham and gave Abraham a ram uh, as a substitute of that sacrifice. I think God... Uh, I, th- I think Jesus took them to the story of Joseph, to this, this man who was loved by his father but rejected by his brothers. And he was left for dead, but he's not dead. No, he's alive and he's reigning over Jew and Gentile alike, providing for them in their need. I think he went to the Passover and he talked about the Passover lamb that was executed in, in every house that applied the blood, the the angel of death would pass over that household and they would be delivered. I think he took them to to the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, where the, the chief priest would sprinkle the blood of a lamb on the altar. And so that when God looked down on the violated law, he saw that that blood covered that. I think he, he took them to um, the concept of the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 where the sins of the nation were placed on the head of this goat which was sent out into the wilderness to die for those sins. I think he took them to Isaiah 53 and the suffering Messiah to um, Jeremiah 31 and the new covenant to um, Ezekiel 34 and the, the shepherd who came to care for his sheep. Zechariah 9, Malachi 3 and 4. I I think he, he showed them all of that stuff. Now, I don't know if that's what Jesus taught them. But what I do know is that he showed them the Old Testament scriptures and showed them how the Old Testament scriptures were just a foreshadow of what would be realized and the one who would come, the Messiah, the Christ. And I can imagine that these two, that this couple thought, who is this guy? He knows us, he knows, knows God, and boy, does he know the scriptures. Verse 28 says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He breaks bread. And maybe it was when he broke the bread and handed it to them that they saw 
the scars that the nails had left in his hands. I don't know, but I, will, I would have liked to have been there. It says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were, our, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You see what happened? They got the story. They saw the whole story. They understood now that God triumphs. That even in his suffering, um, God uses Jesus' death and now his resurrection to triumph over sin and guilt and confusion and failure and, and, and regret and, and problems and even death. See, they got it. And they were so excited that verse 33 says, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. How far away was Jerusalem? How long do you think it took them this time? <laughs> Probably a lot less than two hours. It says, there they found the eleven and those... Um, And those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen. You see what happened? When they got got their perspective changed, they got so excited that they couldn't wait to tell the story. Every one of us is on a journey right now. Every one of us is taking this walk like this couple on the road to Emmaus. And like them, I'll bet for many of us, there are, the road we're on has some uncertainty. The road we're on has some pain and it's got some confusion because we've put our hope in the wrong thing. And so at the end of the day, literally at the end of the day, what we put our hope in hasn't panned out. We had hoped our finances would fill the hole. We had hoped our achievement would fill the hole. We had hoped that relationships would fill the hole. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But you see, the problem is our perspective is off. And we don't know our story until we see how it fits in God's story. But when we see how it fits in God's story, all of a sudden our story becomes a glorious story and we can't wait to tell that story to others. This couple at the end of the day, this long, exhausting, emotionally wrenching day, at the end of the day, after they had experienced the truth of the resurrected Lord, they are so excited, they are so filled up, they can't wait until tomorrow to go back to Jerusalem where Jesus was just crucified, by the way, and share the news, He's alive. He is risen. Here's what we need to understand. When, when we get the true story, 
when we understand, when we are able to see um, not our perspective, but see things from God's perspective, it changes us and it gives us new hope. It changes our hope. You know, everybody has to choose what story they're going to live by. These two on the road to Emmaus were living out of their own story, their own perspective. And they were confused and they were disappointed and they were upset because it hadn't turned out. We had hoped. But then Jesus opened their eyes to the reality of who he is and the reality of what he did. And it changed them and they were filled with joy and real hope in life. They got their story right because they saw how their story fit into God's story. The Apostle Peter wrote these words. He said, In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me read that again. In His great mercy... He, God, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This idea of new birth, that's not talking about um, reincarnation. It's talking about a new identity. It's talking about um, uh, being born again when you become a follower of Jesus. It's talking about getting a new story. It's talking about being able to see life from God's perspective, which now gives me a living hope. Why? Because no, no longer is my hope in something, but now my hope is in someone. Because my past doesn't define me, my failures don't define me, my circumstances don't define me, it's who I belong to that defines me. You see, what happens when I really understand the story, when I understand God's story that I'm a part of, I now understand that I am a much-loved, treasured son of the Most High God. I am a much-loved, treasured daughter of the Most High God. And He defines my value. He defines my worth. Not what I've done, not my failure, not all the crud, but he defines it. And you know what? how he defined it? He defined it that he loves me so much, that he values me so much, that he sent his son to die on a cross for me. And after he died, because he was Jesus, he didn't stay dead. And he rose from the dead, and that validates my hope in him. You see, my hope changes from being in something to being in someone. And that makes all the difference. All the difference. I don't know what your story is. But I do know that if you live long enough, it'll take some turns that you didn't expect it to take. I do know that if you live long enough, there will be some pain and some hardship that you didn't want. I do know that if you live long enough, 
your story will take you to a place where you will question where you've put your hope. But here's what I, I want you to hear this morning is that as long as you keep trying to live out your story the way you perceive life to be, you're always going to walk around. We had hoped. But Jesus is in the business of giving you a new story. You see, this man who did things that no one had ever done, who said things that no one had ever said, um, he came and he died on the cross. And people thought, well, that's just a death like any other death. But it wasn't. Because he rose from the dead for you and me. And because he did, there's hope in life because of him. And we, if we will put our hope in him and not in things, we will experience a fullness that we can't experience any other way. Why? Because we see our story as part of his story. And that's the real story. In a moment, um, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. But before you do, here's the thing. It's a seven-mile journey. And there are a lot of us that have only gone six miles. There are a lot of us who've heard the story over and over and over, and we've been taught, and we know this, and we know that. But we haven't gone the seventh mile. We haven't gone to the place where we've actually invited Jesus in and allowed him to reveal himself to us so that now we get it. We've just done the the Christmas and Easter thing, and we've done, you know, we've gone six miles. But it's a seven-mile journey. And so my encouragement to you this morning is when we pray right now, I encourage you to go the seventh mile and let Jesus show you who he is so that your perspective can be changed, your sin can be forgiven, and you can have real living hope. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that I am not defined by all the crud in my life. I thank you that I am not defined by my failure, um, the ones in the past and the ones that will happen tomorrow and the next day. I thank you that I am defined by you and your value on me. And my hope then is in you. Not in me, not in anything, but it's in you. Lord, I'm grateful for that. I am so grateful that no matter what life throws at me, even though there is pain and there is failure and there is confusion, I can still walk ahead with certainty because... um, I know your story, and I know that you've called me to be a part of your story. And that's true for everyone here. 
Lord, I just, uh, I pray that those of us who've been walking with you for a while would, would just express the, the gratitude that we have for the hope in you. And if, if you're here this morning and you have been following Jesus for a while, and uh, just spend the next couple of moments just saying thank you for how he has provided and how he has sustained and, and the assurances that he's given you. If you're here this morning and you've gone six miles, you have heard it all before, but you've never gone that seventh mile. You, you haven't actually sat at table with Jesus and allowed him to show himself to you in a way that changes everything. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to to pray this prayer. I'm gonna I'm gonna pray a prayer, and you can pray along with me in the quiet of your heart or or something else. But just say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I want to go the seventh mile. I want to take your hand and trust you with my life. I know I'm a sinner and my story is all messed up. I've tried to fix it myself, but I can't. So Lord, I I want to become part of your story. I want you to be my forgiver and my friend, my leader and my Lord. I trust you today. My hope is in you today. For your name's sake.